Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Today, we are thrilled to introduce Dr. Rajesh Tendon to talk about participatory research and the nonprofit participatory research in India, which is gonna be 40 years old this coming year. Dr. Tendon is an internationally acclaimed leader and practitioner of participatory research and development. He founded the Society for Participatory Research in Asia, PRIA, a voluntary organization providing support to grassroots initiatives in South Asia and continues to be its chief functionary since 1982. He also holds a UNESCO Chair on Community-Based Research and Social Responsibility in Higher Education since 2012. He's a prolific writer and scholar and is highly decorated. Dr. Tendon, it is a pleasure. Thanks, Adam. And Joe, it's good to see and talk to you again. It's been a while. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing good. So to just get started, Dr. Tandon, would you mind perhaps introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about Priya and how and why you started this organization? Well, I grew up in a uh, long generation of teachers in uh, the Gangetic Plain in India, a city called Kanpur, which was used to be called the Manchester of India because it used to manufacture textile and war equipment in between the two world wars for the British Army. And as would happen in lower middle class families, uh, you would run through high school and then go and do what was most popular thing to do is get admission to a fancy Indian Institute of Technology. And I joined electronics engineering for five years, not knowing if that is what I wanted to do. And then uh, as peer pressure grew and said, well, you can't just stop at B-Tech, you have to do MBA. And off I went and got selected to join Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta. Now, there I realized that actually I'm not interested in a corporate job, but not knowing what else one could do, uh, you know, I'm barely 23, you know. So, so mercifully, the director of the institute saw some academic quote-unquote potential and he offered me a sort of a junior lecturership for the time being. And when I began to teach, co-teach mostly, Somebody whispered in my ear, you want to do teaching, you're good at it, but then you need PhD. So I landed up in School of Management at Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland. And um, while I was there, political emergency was declared in India. And this is summer of 1975. And um, being curious, somewhat activist in college days, and wanting to do fieldwork in India, not in US. I came up with this idea and thank you, my professors. They said, yeah, yeah, you can go away for a year. And I landed in India 
and my broad sort of topic was the sort of a organizational management analysis of how do poor farmers access public programs meant for them like agriculture program farmers functional literacy program in one of the poorer districts in western rajasthan and i spent about a year there hanging around mostly that was a phenomenally transformative experience and among many things one learned including how to live in villages without electricity and running water and unlearn i was struck by two insights one that most of these illiterate farmers were actually quite knowledgeable and i don't know why they were being told through the farmers functional literacy program that they were stupid and the second thing i realized which was even more painful was that despite my fancy degrees there was hell of a lot i didn't know actually quite wrong conceptions about you know one of the farmers told me that um, why are you running around with this questionnaire i said look i am doing data collection he said can you see i said yes he said can you smell i said yes can you hear can you taste can you touch he said god has given you five senses why aren't you using them all are you living with us my four senses were not trained only my cognition was trained think touch do act feel oh they were not trained that was a very powerful experience i of course went back to finish my phd and came back and i was at that time attached with the national labor institute and i traveled much with rural labor populations and i saw that phenomena repeated that governments and public officials and to some extent even academics were running around telling these people that they don't know anything but what they knew what their experience was nobody was willing to talk to them about so i was trying to struggle with you know this business of knowledge what is knowledge and all that but my professional education was all in physics chemistry mathematics so i had not done any reading or anything like that so i was seeking a reference on this research conundrum and somebody connected me to dr badal who was at that time at international council for adult education in toronto and he sent me a small paper where he had a year or two ago in 1977 or so 76 written something about participatory research research education action kind of thing and then i began to look for these ideas and realized that people can develop themselves provided what they know is recognized and valued and then you can add new knowledge new skills new concepts but you can't do it at denying what they know so i began to look at these examples document some of these stories case studies etc and gradually a network of participatory research started uh, there were also latin american and african networks and i used to in those days connect with people through a cyclo styled newsletter and it was called network of participatory research in asia so by late 1980 i realized that all the exciting work i'm doing over weekends and evenings i'm doing some boring things trying to give talks to these labor officers and all who who are not interested so i i decided to set up some sort of a non profit i didn't know anything about it and when i was setting it up i sent a newsletter message out that look three four of us who were here in delhi so our network members from indonesia korea philippines bangladesh etc they said whatever you do keep the name so that's how the name became participatory research <laughs> and that's how priya began and much of the work we did in the early years was basically to popularize this process of systematizing 
popular knowledge people's knowledge and using that as a building block for their empowerment thank you for that story that resonated with me and i'm sure it resonated with adam because your experience to use all of your senses and having this realization that okay here's a phd there's all this like theorizing and cognition but when you actually get out there you recognize oh there's a lot of knowledge here why is this not being respected in the way that it needs to be and how do we make sure that that is the foundation from which to work and and that realization is really powerful the realization that we need to do something different than what we were taught it's time for a lightning round adam and joe have prepared some key questions for our guest the challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time the first question is can you give us a very short rundown of the mission and vision of priya Essentially, we are trying to contribute towards a more equitable and just communities and societies, but focusing on the voice and empowerment of the people. For 30 years, our motto was knowledge is power. But later on, we realized that knowledge is power for what? So now we say knowledge, voice, democracy, democratic participation and voice, not just in institutions of governance, but also in society, because society is not necessarily democratically organized either. Next question. What is one of the projects that you are working on right now that you're most proud of? We are working right now to support domestic workers whom we call maids, they are predominantly women. We began working with them 4 5 years ago and they began to describe their reality. We came at it from the question of harassment, sexual harassment, bullying, etc both by the employer and also by the various people like security guards etc and then the pandemic came and they were thrown out of the livelihood because they work in middle class homes and middle class shut their doors and many of them are migrants they come from different parts of the country they live in formal settlement so through the work we did they did their own studies they continued to feed the data during the pandemic and we just translated it in the medium which can be uh, shared more widely and uh, in the process they have become very organized now there are two support centers that they have they are volunteering for and our team supports them so they actually did a study to communicate what experience they were having and they presented that study in a sari you know sari is one of these dresses indian women wear and uh, then with our help they took this sari as a sort of a large poster of wall hanging to various employer communities and to district officials to show their experience and to talk about it because uh, it was a very deeply uh, emotional experience for them many were uh, violated in many problematic ways but because they were living in very difficult vulnerable kind of a temporary livelihood situation look after their kids and family they many a times couldn't say anything so this part of our work is one of the very recent work going on and we have now reached out to during the pandemic about 5000 plus families in the new delhi gurgaon sort of capital region of delhi and in the process connected with some emerging domestic workers associations in other metros like mumbai bangalore calcutta etc but the process of building their association and their collectives was essentially the process of participatory research 
is to helping them share their experience alone and in small groups to realize that their experience was very similar. They were not being harassed because they were stupid. They were being harassed because that's the nature of the structure and the patriarchy and the power of the employer. And when they realized that, then they began to get organized. Next question. So you were talking about participatory research. Could you define for listeners community-based participatory research? Well, essentially, it is a process where research as a method of producing new knowledge is carried forward with very active engagement and participation of a community with whom you want to work for empowerment. So not all research needs to be carried out in participatory research. I'm not implying that. Not every academic or student or researcher wants to support direct transformative actions, which is also fine. We need labs and we need theoretical research. That's great. But if you want to work to support social change, to bring about democratic participation and access to rights and entitlements for those who are hitherto excluded and oppressed, then building research process in collaboration and with their partnership is a way for them to understand their experience, theorize from it, and then to realize what action they can take collectively. It is at that stage that you can bring in macro data, macro analysis to feed into their micro realities. And the research process is very similar. It's not, you know, a lot of people confuse uh, participatory research as being qualitative research. It's not. I can give you examples of large scale surveys. Three, four years ago in three cities in India, there, there was a program called uh, Swachh Bharat Mission, which was building toilets for urban poor. And we knew from our experience that a large number of urban poor remain invisible, informal because municipality doesn't have capacity to collect updated data. So we went to these three cities, we mobilized local youth and gave them uh, actual um, smartphones and digital base. And they did surveys and mapping. And in each city, we demonstrated to city government that there were at least 100% more poor households without toilets than they had counted. And then of course, we worked with the community to build their local association and engage with municipality. But this was like 75,000 households in three cities. It's not, a, it's not a qualitative micro study. The purpose of the study and how you use that and how people participate to frame their own research questions and research interests. Because knowledge is used for change and they need to use their knowledge to begin with and then access other knowledge. Last question. What is, for those budding academics and researchers out there who might be thinking about different paradigms, what is the difference between community-based participatory research and community-based participatory action research? This I realized when I met two people who I met much later. One was Orlando Falsborda and another was Anisur Rahman. When Priya was starting, I met them. We had an international forum on participatory research in April 1980 in Ljubljana, then Yugoslavia, where Orlando Falsborda, I met him for the first time. And Anisul Rahman, I had met when he was with ILO around that same time. He came from Bangladesh. To tell you honestly, as a student of management in Calcutta, I first read about action research. And then I went to do my PhD in US in the School of Management. There were also books on action research and action research was essentially being used as a methodology where it implied in order to know more about certain reality, you act on it and see how it changes and all. 
action research action oriented now then i realized that there were two routes one went to schools of management and another went to progressive political social change people in latin america so action research at that time in places in asia for example was not considered progressive it was a mumbo jumbo management methodology but orlando had raised it to the level of political methodology and social action and all that orlando's articulation and anisur rahman's articulation is based on orlando's basically they worked together orlando's articulation till he came to ljubljana did not include knowledge of the people as active participants what it meant was that intellectuals like him would work hand in hand with local farmers but the intellectual work will be done by academics what we were saying is no let them participate to begin with academic intellectual tools are bigger more pronounced they may hesitate to articulate what they know and this is why you have to facilitate this so it may appear as if we are the prime movers of research but if in the research process they become real partners they will analyze the findings and take action based on it i may publish the findings so that is the major difference between participatory research and participatory action so it's only in 1981 82 that p was added to ar and then of course by 87 another confusion was added called pra and how this happened i'll tell you because i was involved in that also robert chambers from uk came to india i was doing some research he was trying to say that you know this baseline research and all these academics do take a long time and of course development agencies like the bank and dfid want quick uh, baseline so that they can pump pounds and dollars and he returned and he had heard that priya and rajesh tandon and he I, our office at that time was in a slightly rural area out of delhi he came and he was talking about rapid rural appraisal so if you go back to priya's documents and we can share with you robert's first article was rapid rural appraisal and in encounter with me and some others we, we said well this is the same old wine you were just calling it rapid maybe some intellectual and more professional academic will say this is a poor quality because it is rapid huh? but it is not community linked you are just going there and asking questions so then he reframed it as participatory rural appraisal and when i teach this pr and all my colleagues and there are a couple of publications in priya on this we explain this history because each intellectual tradition came from a different context but does not necessarily mean the same thing the normative standing of pra pra has become very popular but behind the dollar and euro and pound check of international development agencies so indonesian army has been conducting pra please tools without normative and ideological underpinnings tools are dangerous knives and swords that brings us to the end of the lightning round I'd like to go back to something that you said earlier and sort of a point that you've referenced a couple times already which has to do with capturing voice and knowledge in the field as a mechanism of participation within the realm of research. I think it's safe to say that even though there's different variations of participatory research, that's one of the core tenets 
For me, it's really easy to talk about participation in theory. It's really easy to write about it. It's easy to talk about why it's important. But when we talk about things like capturing people's voice and democratizing knowledge, I think it's just one of those things that's easier said than done. You've been at this for a long time. So my question for you is very practically speaking, what have been some of the more effective mechanisms or processes that you have used to catalyze participation, to capture voice in the field with people that don't necessarily understand that they're part of this bigger process as it relates to participatory research? Well, there are a large number of what I call data collection methods. I won't go into that. But my starting point is knowledge for what? Why are we doing research? So my experience of working with local communities has been that when they see value to them, to their communities that the research may contribute to, they are willing to talk about it. We have to build relationships of trust. We don't belong to their community. We look different. We speak different language. And uh, in a caste-based society like India, where Brahmanical, Sanskritized language tradition goes on for 5,000 years, this is even more problematic. So when young researchers come in, and this is an advice to all the young researchers who want to do this, I always connect them to a local organization first, because that organization is there to stay. Young researchers, students, PhD scholars, they're not there to stay. I don't expect them to leave everything else in life and stay there forever. Nor do they have enormous amount of time or resources to go and build ab initio trust. I hung around there in 1977, 78 for a year. That was a different era, but still I hung around for a year. But I was introduced to that community through a local organization. I didn't go there and say, I'm Rajesh Tandon, hello, would you sit with me? I went with local community organizers there, stayed there, started chatting. And the same process I use for all people, even academics who wants to do research, you have to go through a local trusted organization and then through them have a conversation. The most important methods that we talk about how are the same which are normally called the popular education methods. The most important competence for participating researchers that I teach my colleagues is how to facilitate conversation and listen, not how to design a survey instrument. And most research methodologies don't train people in facilitation, how to use methods which will enable people to talk. And many of them are popular education methods, storytelling, you know, you take photographs, collages, all these. They are methods to get people into a comfort zone, safe space to speak out. Because, you know, when you are below the totem pole in the bottom line, then there are relations of power over centuries that you have imbibed. And, and participatory research process, if it superficially goes there, it will perpetuate and reinforce the same relations of power. The critical difference in the practice is that we have to support analytical process by the community. Because once they analyze and reach conclusions, they will act on it. I will analyze, I will act on it, whichever way I think. But if they analyze, I analyze, and together, I may be able to write it up and give it to a policymaker in the English language. They may act on their findings to talk to the local official and say, we want this 
this scheme is available for us why it is not being delivered the process is essentially a process of building a comfort and a trusting relationship and through the process of facilitation getting them to have a conversation in a longer term relationship i always encourage people to find local researchers in the, 40 years ago it was very difficult nowadays young people in the community have basic functional literacy you can bring them as core researchers train them work with them they will give you insights and research questions and many people say that look you know i have applied for a research project i've got the research questions already what can i do well you start with your research question but be open they may want an additional research question to be considered and if you want partnership uh, why should they answer your research question only and for the young researchers the biggest problem is they don't have time and they cannot spend time in building the partnership and trusting relationships and that's why they must go through what i call intermediating networks or institutions or agencies or so the how part is uh, contextual one of the first studies i did on the largest pavement dwellers in mumbai there was a high court decision to throw them out saying those who, who came after a certain date will not be allowed to stay there and the community is new but there was an organization working with them we got the young people to just collect simple data in those days there was no computers or smartphone how many people in your family age when did you come how long are you on this footpath that's it the study showed that more than half the kids were born on the footpath they were not new arrivals and there was a sample size of some 17000 families when we presented that data it through a public conference of course as researchers we stood with the community we prepared the data sheets but they showed it to the and gave it to the media and then they were fighting the case in high court and we wrote about it separately later on that's where i would recommend all young researchers to look for local partners who can enable your work without you feeling the pressure that oh one semester is gone i have not even framed my research question a couple of the highlights i think of of your response as i understood at least was you know focus on building relationships of trust finding local organizations like you just kind of circled back to to work with consider the process of facilitation really creating practical data that the community can own and which can ultimately lead to change and consider in addition to local organizations understand what's going on from like a local research lens so those were just some of like the initial highlights that I pulled out i do have one more follow up question and it's one more layer to peel back in response to what you said and it has to do with finding a local organization i was so happy that you said that because i think that's one of the most important things that you can do if you're going to be getting involved with participatory change especially in a community that perhaps one isn't part of now i'm sure you know and have seen this over the course of the years that especially these days social change organizations are a dime a dozen I know that's how it is here in Peru and frankly there are just some that I would say work more responsibly or ethically than others. My question is specifically with regard to finding a local organization. Can you talk maybe about some of the characteristics of an organization that you would consider trustworthy or worthy of engaging in participatory research and maybe some of the red flags that you might want to stay clear from if you were a student or a budding scholar trying to engage in participatory research well you know i and priya had a distinctive advantage because when i began to talk about participatory research i 
worked with a large number of civil society groups who were working among the indigenous people and farmers at that time there were more organizations working with farmers women a few rural women and then uh, indigenous people we called tribals and what happened in the process i was working with them is that they realized that the methodology i was talking about they were using it but not necessarily articulating it and they were not systematizing it so now in fact what i am promoting is for universities and research centers to build a slightly longish partnership with local organizations and obviously the best way to do it is at least in in the cultures i know is through word of mouth it's a, it's a relationships of trust i i don't select an organization without visiting them because of late particularly with the social media and the modern technology what necessarily shines does not necessarily have roots and when you visit the only thing i tell them to notice is you take them along take their field workers along and uh, in the rural area or the urban slum and just walk around with them just inquiring and you look at not the community you look at the way this field worker behaves with the community does it show respect does it show authenticity does it show care and concern or does it show pomposity show off oh i have improved their lives forever and in the last few months of the pandemic a whole bunch of people who are running around giving relief give 100 packets of relief but post 200 photographs on social media this is unethical you cannot make people who are in difficult situations who are needing relief to be made to feel that they are beggars they are self respecting people all of us can go through such situations in our lives and do go but what helps us to come out of those situations when a supportive hand is i feel i was supported not the supporter if your support makes me feel supported it is support if you feel you supported me so there's their relationship with the local community their manner of speaking how they sit what they eat how they behave that's enough that's enough to understand whether this relationship that they have with the community is something we can work on yeah i completely agree that's a very poignant way of saying something that i think is fundamental to real socially just social change which is those relationships and how people build those relationships how the field workers like you mentioned build those relationships how the different nonprofit or community organizations build their relationships with each other the networks that you're talking about we've worked in very different contexts but some of the phenomena that you have highlighted and some of the the values and normative understandings are very very similar in the you know Peruvian highlands as in in India and the way people talk about the communities that they work in and then how they relate with the communities that they work in those are really telling and i think you're exactly right that when you go out and you visit and you see how people are relating with the communities that's where you know if it's going to be a, a good organization to work with so i think that's very powerful thank you for for sharing that one of the things that i want to go back to and it's related to this is the idea of the what you mentioned as the normative and ideological stance that you take as a participatory researcher and you have all these tools you know research methods or all these tools in the tool shed like you said and they can either be precise scalpels to support people or they can be dangerous knives so i'm curious to learn a little bit more about the 
ways in which you have developed your sense of the normative and ideological understandings over these 40 years, you know, because like you said, you, you know, you're kind of at one of the, the foundational points when you first started, right? This is the whole community-based social change. We can say CBPR, PRA, CBPAR, you know, you're a contemporary of Orlando Fowles Borda, Freire, all of these people who started this. So I'm just curious, over your 40 plus years of experience, how have these normative and ideological understandings changed and where are you now? I think uh, the foundational understanding became sharper after 10, 15 years because you, you don't articulate it very clearly. You know it, you feel it. And that is everybody has a knowledge and experience. Bulk of their context is structurally keeping them oppressed and Yes, they have a little role to play, but without the changing of structures and institutional conditions, they alone cannot. Collective agency, collective voice is essential to change relations of power. It's not an individual enterprise. And uh, support from the powerful within the system is also essential. Till about early 90s or so, mid 90s, I didn't pay much attention to influencing the official system. I, I used to sort of engage with them but and then a very funny thing happened i had a friend uh, who was earlier in oxfam john clark he had joined the newly created civil society group in the world bank in washington dc so he invited me to sit in a committee which was formulating a policy on participation so i said oh, what can world bank do participation you know they're busy sending money displacing people he said no 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 come, come. so i went there and to my initial surprise, I found that some people actually were concerned that they were wasting their money. They said it was. They were generating conflict. They're throwing money because they needed to get rid of money. There has to be a better way of doing these things. So I then used these kinds of opportunities to influence the officialdom in Indian system. But my strategy was that Priya can work at the very grassroots and some part of Priya with, you know, networks and all can bring in Washington also. But you can't interact with Washington without roots on the ground. Otherwise, you will be global elites unrelated to what's happening locally. So networks of collaboration, how do you build? And then I came up with this idea that participation and voice through participatory research can also influence policymaking. So our role was intermediation, open the doors. So if Priya convenes a dialogue, you know, the big policymakers sitting in Delhi would come in. At least they will feel that they can, they won't be mauled by the community. But we won't speak on behalf of them. Of course, some of them may not know local language. So we will translate. We will also give them a written policy brief. And whatever conversation happens, we'll put it out in the public domain. In the earlier days, it was print media or whatever. So that the world knows that this conversation has taken place. It's not a closed door negotiation going on. This understanding that you need people in the system as well to support those who are organizing to act from the outside is a very important understanding. And we say mid 90s, late 90s, and every study, every action, participatory action research we do, we always convene a policy dialogue now. Even if it is difficult, you know, state government, local officials, national officials, international funders, whoever. So that sensitization happens. And we build it into our project as a commitment. When 
other researchers come to us and say we want to do this research would you partner we say yes we'll partner on two conditions one you will have to keep some resources for the local community to participate and two you'll have to keep some resources for a policy conversation to happen locally later on you can go and present in international conference but where we have done research that community wants to engage on the basis of that knowledge with the system and it is our responsibility to facilitate that that's great thank you very much for that moving to your knowledge for change initiative was something that we were really curious to learn a little bit more about because we thought it was really relevant and what you were just speaking about in terms of bringing people into conversation and making sure that the system you know those people in positions of power are engaging with the knowledge for change so could you tell us a little bit more about the knowledge for change initiative it was in 2008 that this network called guni global university network for innovation invited me to write a paper on their a global report world report on higher education and this report was on higher education and social and economic development and they asked me to write something on from a civil society lens community lens how issues emerge to become part of the academic discourse ecological issues women's issues race issues you know whatever issues so academics didn't think of it my i was basically saying people's movements community mobilization contestation on the ground and public discourse emerges from which academic disciplines emerge academic work emerges so natural then they invited me to attend unesco's higher education conference that was 2009 then they said oh what you are saying is very interesting you know people's knowledge blah 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 and the resolutions of that conference included higher education as a public good and knowledge for larger public good and valuing indigenous knowledge you know that kind of those were part of that declaration so then they approached i was there bud was not there but they approached me and wrote i asked bud i said look you are in a academic institution respectable i am in a mambo jumbo grassroots so we presented and they agreed and our chair was the first chair which has two legs but in victoria university of victoria canada me in priya and unesco had no provision all unesco chairs before that was single professor in one university and their mou also had language trained students we added trained students and community practitioners so anyway unesco was accommodative after that we are very happy that four or five other joint chairs have emerged since uh, 2012 so when we began we did a study on what is happening in the world around these big concepts called co-construction of knowledge etc which had entered the vocabulary by 2012 so we found that oh large number of academics were using this except that one of the questions was and who framed the research 90% time framed by academics even in the canadian system where you have this community university research partnerships and all separate granting mechanism um, which we later discovered similar mechanism exist in south africa and indonesia also. so we said then how are these people being trained if they are going to do co construction and, and do all the framing of research in advance so what will co construction mean just collecting some data anyway that was happening earlier so then we realized that training of young people whether they are students or young practitioners 
is happening in two parallel tracks in the survey we discovered in the research and the case study we prepared one track was academic training in classroom and occasional field experience another was practice practitioner training in the field no reading no synthesizing no systematizing learning by doing one was learning by doing another was learning by reading so we said is it not possible to combine the two so we came up with this idea by that time we had met a number of interested academics in many countries and we said look you know we are thinking of how to train the next generation of participatory researchers but do it in a way that they can also learn by doing research can we think of a hub approach where community organizations and academic institution partner and these are knowledge for change hubs and they select local issues even if they select an sdg it's local priority and they do research in local language in local dialect and they produce case studies in local language because in many jurisdictions and contexts training material was also not available in local languages what was available basically three or four european languages so this is how knowledge for change emerged and uh, now we have a network each hub is a partnership some have multiple partnerships the purpose of the hub is to create training learning opportunities for the next generation of young students and practitioners and by doing research together not just training in the classroom but also doing it together and using that research to bring about some local action local change and that so they they are very localized hubs so that's how it started i think i can speak for both joe and i that i mean this was such a pleasure i think we could probably maintain this conversation all day any any final insights or big picture takeaways you'd like to share with our audience well i tell this to all my young colleagues anybody students in india now i've managed to persuade the university grants commission in india i am on the expert committee now they consider me touchable earlier i was untouchable <laughs> that now i am rolling out with their help a nationwide scheme of training academics in participatory research so that they can work with the students in the community basically the program is meant to take students in the field real world and do something meaningful locally my sort of advice to all my young colleagues is take the risk at best you will not get good data but there is no guarantee that you will get good data even in a lab so many times failures happen in labs so take the risk try out something try a new method your experience of that will be the most important learning for you make note of all the things that misfired things that you could not do all the mistakes you made all the problems you faced make note of them you can reflect on it learn from it but we owe it to our societies and our communities and to the planet that if we have had the privilege of doing and learning something we make it available to the larger context which needs urgent change whether it is from a ecological point of view or from a justice point of view or combine ecological justice point of view this society this world this planet is unsustainable and young researchers irrespective of the discipline they have can make a difference if they engage with the communities and contribute as much as they can i am not saying go hungry leave your job abandon uh, publications do all that and In fact if you do engaged work your publications will shine 
Well, Dr. Tannen, I, I think that's what we call a mic drop moment. That's a great wrap up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, to all of you listening, I highly recommend going to Priya's website. You can find it at www.priya.org. They have a ton of resources and information on the website. Definitely go check it out. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.